Hi, my name's Andrew Short, and welcome back to the Idealist Podcast. On this episode, I'm talking about the most incredible, fortunate thing in the universe, consciousness. What luck that there's such a thing. Without it, the universe might as well not exist, because there wouldn't be anyone there to experience reality, wouldn't be anyone there to perceive that there's such a thing as existence at all. In episode two of this podcast, I connected this observation to idealist metaphysics, which holds that the foundation of the universe is consciousness, that something can only exist if it's known to exist, and at root, everything consists of information and logic in a cosmic, all-pervasive mind. This viewpoint on the nature of reality was most famously summed up by the 18th century philosopher George Berkeley in the line, Essay est percipi, to be is to be perceived. Today, I want to discuss how this perspective helps explain human consciousness, thought, and imagination. The fashionable way to discuss consciousness right now is to go on about how it's the most impossibly mysterious thing in the world, how it may be the one thing humans will never comprehend. While that may be true, I think that's starting off on the wrong foot. There's a tendency to get hung up on the most fundamental questions like, what is consciousness after all? Why does it exist? And this stops us from asking other useful questions. This isn't the case for other interesting phenomena in the universe, like electricity. We don't get stuck asking, but why do positive charges attract negative charges? Or what is an electrical field? Why does it exist? We just take for granted that these things are the case and do useful things with them. I think this is how we should approach consciousness, especially because I believe we're currently in the process of designing new forms of consciousness in the form of artificial intelligence. I'll return to that point later, but first, I want to get started in a different way. Rather than framing consciousness as impossibly magical and marveling at its admittedly fascinating and perplexing mysteries, let's look at what we do know about it. The starting point should be this. From what we know about brains, it seems clear that consciousness arises whenever information is processed in certain ways. Those certain ways seem to be related to the tasks that brains do, in particular generating and reacting to a model of the world. From this view, human consciousness is a result of computations in the brain that form a model of the world out of information gathered from the senses. This connects to the idealist metaphysics I mentioned before, which holds that fundamentally, information can only exist through being known to exist. This means that everything in existence is both the information comprising that thing and the awareness of the reality and validity of that information. Thus, an object only exists insofar as the informational reality of that object is known to some fundamental knower in the universe. This relates to another classic Latin philosophic one-liner. Descartes' cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. This remains an incredibly profound observation. Descartes was setting out on his philosophical inquiry of the world by doubting everything, along the lines that everything he knew about the world could be an illusion perpetrated by some omnipotent demon intent on tricking Descartes. He reasoned that the demon could be implanting false memories in his mind, creating an illusion of the world that Descartes was sitting in, and if this were the case... Descartes realized there would be no real way for him to tell what is true and what isn't. After listing off other aspects of the world he could reasonably doubt, Descartes came upon the realization that the one thing he couldn't doubt is the existence of his mind. His mind has to exist in the first place for him to be able to doubt. This, I find, remains incredibly insightful. It's just true. If you have the capacity to doubt your own existence, that very fact guarantees that the part of you which is doubting exists. 
I think this sheds some further light on the idealist perspective because it demonstrates an inextricable link between perception and existence. If a perception is experienced, the existence of that perception is undoubtable. In the idealist viewpoint, this is broadened out to the precept that information can only exist through being perceived, that perception is the ground floor requirement for existence of any kind. When a brain computes an informational model of the world, this informational model is, like all information, accompanied by the awareness of the content of that informational model. Any new informational model of the universe that is created is automatically perceived due to the link between information processing and awareness, and any informational model only exists insofar as its content is perceived by an awareness. Arguably, an awareness is always the awareness, the universal mind that underlies and embodies everything in existence which is present wherever information is present. From this view, human consciousness is simply an extension of the consciousness that already pervades the universe, present everywhere as the basis for and fabric of everything that exists. The content of the informational model of reality my brain creates is perceived by this awareness, and the me that's here experiencing my brain's model of reality is none other than the universal mind that comprises the entirety of existence. Now, this may or may not be true, but I'll ask you to just take it for granted as true for the duration of this podcast. You can return to believing that your consciousness is a private soul that's all yours and which is forever separate from the rest of the universe, or whatever other thing you usually take for granted, after this podcast is over. For now, I want to show how this perspective clarifies some perplexing things about consciousness. But before moving on to that, I want to make clear that though I'm saying conscious experiences arise out of information processing, I don't think every informational process in the world gives rise to the type of personal, subjective consciousness we experience from moment to moment. It seems evident that only information processing related to forming and reacting to a model of the world is involved in giving rise to the consciousness we experience. For example, I would say that there is information which makes up the existence of my desk right now, like the position and space of all the molecules making it up, and the physical circumstance of those molecules, but I don't think the meaning of that information is experienced by my desk. I think that kind of information is known only to the fundamental conscious perceiver, and it exists in some unimaginable overmind that knows all of the physical circumstances in the universe. Similarly, many of the actions taken by an animal, like breathing, can be automated because they don't require a high level of information processing to achieve. Simply rhythmically contracting certain muscles accomplishes the task of breathing. Similar thing for a heartbeat. It takes minimal information processing to achieve, thus it isn't required to be a conscious process in an organism. But wherever comprehension of the state of the world and an organism's place in that world are needed for appropriate actions to be taken, consciousness is called into being to deal with that. Okay, so how can the idealist perspective clarify perplexing things about consciousness? For one, there's what's known as the binding problem in the philosophy of mind, which asks, how can this one continuous experience arise out of spatially distinct neural processes? While I can't definitively answer this question, nor any of the other ones I bring up today, I think the idealist viewpoint helps make sense of it. If it's true that there's one fundamental knower, the universal phenomenon of consciousness that underlies the existence of all information, it would make sense that any new informational model that needs to be experienced to exist would be experienced by that one consciousness. 
Though brains contain separate information processing units, like my temporal lobes modeling auditory information gathered by my ears, and my occipital lobes modeling visual information from my eyes, the meaning of the information model is always experienced by the one experiencer, the universal consciousness. Thus, all the disparate information processes taking place in different groups of neurons in my brain all occupy the same conscious space, where they are perceived by the fundamental knower of reality. A crucial detail is that brains are wired up in such a way that information from these different regions can be connected together, building up more complicated ideas and understandings out of smaller bits of information. For example, my brain can combine the informational modeling making up my visual field with information from my memory and from whatever brain regions identify hunger, and use this combination of ideas to build the complicated plan and set of actions required to cook dinner for myself. So a key aspect of so-called binding in consciousness, where all my different brain activities can coalesce into a single continuous space of consciousness, is that these different brain regions are intensely interconnected. So, when I say all the disparate information processes taking place in different groups of neurons in my brain all occupy the same conscious space where they are perceived by the fundamental knower of reality, you might say, wait a minute, you're saying there's only one conscious experiencer for all the information modeled everywhere. Why don't I experience other people's thoughts then? I would answer that the same experiencer, the same me, does actually experience every single person's thoughts and experiences, but that these experiences are missing that key aspect of binding I just discussed. Two people's brains are disconnected from one another, wholly self-contained. There's no direct way for the information and the experiences generated in one brain to interact with and broaden the information and experiences generated in another because there's no direct informational connection between the two. We have to instead fall back on indirect methods like speaking to share information between brains. Here's another way to illustrate this. Have you heard of split brain patients? A medical procedure for alleviating things like epilepsy involves severing the connection between the right and left hemispheres in a patient's brain, rendering the two halves informationally disconnected from one another. These people can still behave and operate normally for the most part, but some interesting peculiarities arise. Some preliminary details first off. Information from the left half of your visual field is sent to the right hemisphere of your brain to be processed, and information from the right half of your visual field is sent to the left hemisphere. Also, the speech center typically occupies the left hemisphere of the brain. In experiments where a split-brain patient is shown an image in the right half of their visual field, that information is sent to and processed in their left hemisphere, where it can be accessed by the speech center. When asked what they were shown, the patient can say what it was. On the other hand, if the patient is shown an image in the left half of their visual field, that information is sent to and processed in their right hemisphere, where it can't be accessed by the speech center. When asked what they were shown, the patient can't say, and will often simply report that they didn't see anything at all. In fact, the left hemisphere that's doing the talking didn't see anything. However, if the patient is instead asked to draw what they saw with their left hand, which is controlled by the right hemisphere of the brain, where the image was seen, they're able to draw the image that their right hemisphere saw. These cases are fascinating, both because of the incredible insights they provide into how different information processing capabilities are distributed throughout the brain, and also because of what they reveal about the binding problem. 
I'd say that in a split-brain patient, it's still the same conscious experiencer that perceives the activity in both hemispheres of the brain. But because there's no way for the information processed in each half to interact with the other, the conscious experience in the left brain is unaware of the conscious experience in the right, and vice versa. The left half of the brain would have to be able to take in inputs from the right half of the brain to broaden its model of the world using the right half's model of the world, and vice versa. But the informational link through which this interface normally occurs has been severed. Thus, the models of the world therein are forever separate. This, I'd say, is exactly the case between two separate people. The experiences in both separate brains occupy the awareness of the one fundamental universal consciousness, but because the information can't interact and mutually broaden the experiences in the two brains, the experiences therein are forever separate. So another question the idealist viewpoint helps answer is, why me? That is, out of all the people who have lived in all the ages of history, why do I happen to occupy this person at this time? In the idealist view, it makes perfect sense why you are the one experiencing your life at this moment, because this view holds that you are the one experiencing every life in all moments. Any informational model of the world generated anywhere in the universe is experienced by the one fundamental consciousness at the heart of reality, so the one that feels your sensations and wills your actions is that one fundamental consciousness. It's also the one that feels my sensations and wills my actions and is the one that feels the sensations and wills the actions of the spider crouched outside my window. Any subjective, personal mind that is called into being by a brain must be experienced, and the universal consciousness is the one that is present in every case. You're the one experiencing your life because you're the one that experiences every life, everything. If this is true, it would really upend a lot of the things we understand about reality. It would definitely make the whole gather all the resources you can to yourself and fuck everyone else mentality us Americans have bought for so long look pretty foolish. It would also have the effect of pulling back the curtain on the eat or be eaten, only the strong survive mode that nature operates in, showing that it's all something of a game of hide and seek with ourselves, as philosopher Alan Watts once put it. Pulling back that curtain would reveal that our wars and posturing and self-aggrandizement all hinge on an embarrassing misconception of our place in the world, a perspective on life that is slowly becoming defensible only through willful ignorance of the knowledge we've gained through science. Maybe pulling back this curtain is a critical step in the maturation of an intelligent species, finally looking around and seeing that things aren't the way they seem to our instincts, aren't the way they seem on the superficial surface. Maybe it's only through realizing that we really are all one that we can avoid destroying ourselves in some orgy of technologically enabled violence. It's like the path of a budding intelligent species has only two ends, enlightenment or utter destruction. Speaking of our evolution as an intelligent species, there's another well-known question in the philosophy of mind that asks, why did consciousness evolve? That is, evolution developed all of the complex machinery in our bodies, from our cells and proteins to our bones, muscles, eyes, and ears. Most of that machinery seems to operate perfectly fine without conscious intervention, like our heartbeats, our digestion, our immune systems, and we can react to some stimuli without consciously deciding to, like flinching away from a hot stove that we've brushed against. Why then did evolution give rise to this complicated thing, consciousness, if it didn't have to? In this line of thinking, a living being that can survive, reproduce, and interact with its environment, but which has no inner sensations whatsoever, is called a zombie, or a philosophical zombie, to distinguish it from the Night of the Living Dead type. 
So the line of questioning goes, why are we conscious at all? Why aren't we just senseless zombies automatically carrying out all the actions required for surviving? Implicit in this line of thinking is the belief that consciousness is a nigh-on supernatural thing, impossibly magical and difficult to create. So how in the world did evolution develop such a magical thing? I argue that this implicit message in the question is misguided. Just because we can't understand why consciousness occurs doesn't mean it's impossibly difficult to create. Again, I think we should accept as a premise that consciousness occurs in response to certain kinds of information processing on a spectrum, with less involved information processing giving rise to lower levels of consciousness, things like basic sensations such as pain and pleasure, and more involved information processing giving rise to higher levels of consciousness, things like love, awe, humor, abstract reasoning, and imagination. I'll argue that such conscious phenomena confer a survival benefit at every level over an alternative, senseless creature, a zombie, so it's not at all mysterious why consciousness evolved. To address this question, let's first step back and ask, what does it take to survive in this world? To survive, an animal must take in information about its surroundings and combine it with information about itself to take appropriate actions. Is the animal running low on energy? If so, then it needs to find some food to eat. Are there any rapid movements or loud sounds happening in the vicinity that might signal danger? If so, the animal may have to use some information about how its own body works to flee or use its claws to fend off the danger. In any case, survival requires a living being, which is really just some complex lump of matter, to take actions in response to information. An evolutionary argument would hold that any living lump of matter that can take more appropriate actions will have a better chance of surviving and making more copies of itself through reproduction. Now, what does it take to get a lump of matter to take actions? One way is to design that lump of matter to operate mechanistically, to build a set of functions into the object such that for a given input, a correct output is performed. Many of the machines humans design operate in this way. If you give a clock the right input, maybe putting in energy by winding a spring, the mechanisms built into the clock translate that energy into a regular, precise spinning of the clock's hands. If you turn the key in a fossil-fueled car's ignition, a cascade of causality flows through the machinery therein, eventually causing a spark that lights some gasoline on fire, and a carefully designed feedback system allows your engine to sustain a series of rhythmic explosions and transfer the energy generated by them to turning the car's wheels. This may be the way that humans get lumps of matter to take actions, but it's not very flexible. Designing such a system requires carefully planning out specific responses to different inputs and hardwiring them into the system. This is clearly a big drawback because many of the actions organisms must take to survive are extraordinarily complicated and can't simply be duplicated every time they're called for. The world is just too complex and unpredictable for this to be a useful strategy. Automatically running directly away from a predator isn't a good plan if that leads you to run right off the side of a cliff. Fortunately, nature has a much easier and more flexible solution to the problem of getting a lump of matter to take the types of actions necessary for survival. Instead of building complex, conditional, logical functions into that lump of matter that it must automatically follow, nature gives that lump of matter conscious sensations that motivate that lump of matter, say, a mouse, to take actions. This is a key point. One of the primary functions conscious sensation serves is to motivate organisms to take actions. The mouse isn't hardwired to behave in a predetermined way. Instead, it's presented with a general impetus in the form of conscious sensations and reward pathways. 
For example, the sensation of hunger feels unpleasant, and the mouse is thus motivated to eliminate that sensation, to expend energy to forage about and hunt for food. If it feels the conscious sensation of fear, that sensation motivates the mouse to run or to hide in a dark spot. If it feels the conscious sensation of lust, that sensation motivates the mouse to perform whatever mating rituals mice perform. All of these actions take energy, and a lump of matter devoid of perceptual motivations would simply just sit there instead of expending that energy, barring some profoundly complex system of logical feedback loops of the type a human would have to design to get a system to respond to stimuli. Of course, many aspects of mouse and other animal behavior, including human behavior, do seem to be hardwired in the form of instinct, but my point here is that the mechanism, the technology through which instinct motivates its complex ends, is through conscious sensation. Further, any behaviors that require an organism to adapt to new circumstances that aren't covered by instinct are similarly motivated and informed by conscious sensation. Throughout the early development of life, any creature that happened to have some way of processing information related to its surroundings would have an advantage over creatures without this capacity. Over time, developing more comprehensive information processing capabilities gave rise to deeper states of conscious awareness and understanding, conferring ever greater survival benefits. Thus, all evolution needs for consciousness to develop is an organism that has a way of processing information that gives rise to some small survival benefit. The advantage that better information processing lends an organism and its progeny leads to the evolution of information gathering capacities like antennae, eyes, and ears, and information processing units like brains, along with the ever broader and deeper conscious states enabled by these. Since conscious perception is a result of information processing, more detailed types of information processing can give rise to forms of knowledge. Things like understanding the dynamics of any given situation, like knowing scary predators are more likely to be encountered in an open field than in a cozy burrow, and planning a series of actions given knowledge of how, for example, a prey species behaves. So, another key point. Conscious perceptions provide not only the motivations for action, but also an ability to fulfill those motivations across a vast range of unexpected situations in an adaptable, fluid way. In addition to all of this, I believe that consciousness allows types of information processing that wouldn't be possible without it. As I was discussing before in reference to the binding problem, conscious awareness is a space in which the meaning of all the different informational processes in the brain's world modeling can come together into one continuous understanding, where ideas from these different regions can be compared and combined into new ideas. Consciousness receives inputs from visual processing, sound processing, taste, touch, memory, planning, and imagining, and bundles all of these in one continuous experience, allowing all the disparate, specialized information processing units of the brain to be consolidated in a single higher-order understanding. The act of perceiving that higher-order understanding then provides a new input to all of the lower-order information processing units comprising the brain's lobes and neurons. It serves to connect and expand upon these disparate informational processes. In this view, thinking, and moment-to-moment -moment life in general, is an iterative, cooperative process that takes place between the informational processing circuitry in our brains and the overarching space in which the meaning of all that information is combined and experienced, conscious awareness. Put most simply, consciousness receives inputs from the brain, combines and modifies those inputs with reference to which are most interesting or salient, then outputs that modified information back to the brain, where it is distributed amongst the various information processing centers, 
processed again and then sent back to consciousness and again and again. An example, if I'm lost in a forest, stumbling about and dying of thirst, part of the information processing going on in my brain is identifying a lack of sufficient water for necessary biological processes in my body, and that information presents as a sensation of desperate thirst in my awareness. That sensation motivates me to search about anywhere I can for water. If my ears pick up the sound of rushing water, through neural processing, that information presents itself to consciousness as the sensation of hearing that noise. My conscious awareness is the informational space in which those two stimuli, the feeling of thirst and the sound of water, are combined. My brain now has a new input. Not only am I desperately thirsty, there is water nearby, in that direction. Now that these two pieces of knowledge have been combined in the space of my conscious awareness, I'm motivated to walk in that direction, and my desire to walk in that direction serves as a new input for my brain. In other words, my consciousness takes as inputs the two sensations, combines them into a new understanding, and outputs a new instruction to the brain. Walk in the direction of the water. I'd argue that in the absence of the conscious perception and understanding of the content of the information being processed by these separate brain regions, there would be no efficient way for the new informational conclusion to be reached. Consciousness is the most seamless and reliable way for the informational content generated by the activities of separate groups of neurons to be connected and elaborated on in a wider informational context than would be possible for any individual subset of neurons to produce. Another example. Just now I saw one of my shoes on the floor. The way the mouth of the shoe was squished made me think of Sylvester Stallone screaming Adrian at the end of Rocky. I think it's not the case that my occipital lobes, in processing the visual information of that shoe, computed also that, hey, this looks like something else I've encountered, and sent that information over to the exact set of neurons in my brain that encode the memory of that scene in Rocky. No, what I think happened was the occipital lobe processing that information caused the sensation of seeing the shoe in my conscious awareness, and that sensation from consciousness was reflected into my brain's other processing centers, including those that can access and process memories. Processing centers in my temporal lobes took information directly from the field of my conscious sensations and crunched some information to inform my consciousness that, hey, there's a memory somewhere in here that this image reminds me of. My consciousness was intrigued by the sensation of being reminded of something, and my attention being focused on that sensation prompted further information processing along that path. Those information processing centers crunched further information to locate the memory corresponding to that visual information, and that information crunching, along with the memory being located, were presented to my consciousness, where I perceived the mildly humorous connection between the two. The brain-mind system collaborates at each step of the way and has to be ready at a moment's notice to adapt and act in a chaotic, dangerous world. It's consciousness which examines all the different elements of brain processing, including the present state and experience and memory, and devises the right response to the motivations and information coming from the brain's information processing. Again, if we're going to begin to understand consciousness, we have to stop treating it as some magical thing and look at it as a phenomenon in the universe just like any other. It's clear that consciousness can affect physical matter. For example, by causing my mouth to speak these words, my consciousness is directly affecting the behavior of all this physical matter. And it's clear that physical matter can affect consciousness. For example, the sound waves hitting your ears right now are causing this experience in your mind. Since this is true, consciousness must relate to the physical universe according to the laws of physics. Consciousness is like a force in the universe that can modify the physical behavior of neurons. 
It's like the brain bounces disparate sets of informational content off of consciousness, which consolidates and comprehends the meaning of that information, and which then modifies that information by making connections between those sets of information and combines them into a new meaning. That new meaning is then bounced back to the brain and distributed amongst the disparate information processing regions therein, which process some new information based on the new meaning, and the result of this processing is echoed in conscious awareness, which perceives the new meaning of that information and combines it again in a new way, and back and forth and back and forth. So there must be a physics of consciousness, whereby any of the things about the world that consciousness changes are accounted for by the conservation of energy and mass and momentum and every other law of physics that is apparently inviolable. I'm not saying we're there yet, but we should frame our thinking about consciousness in these terms without too much hesitation. I think it's only becoming more important to get a grasp on consciousness, because we are soon to be responsible for not only how we treat the animals around us that happen to be conscious, but how we design new consciousnesses in the form of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence will be conscious, and I would wager some versions already are in some limited capacity. I think this is true based on the idea that consciousness arises out of the types of information processing that are involved in forming and reacting to a model of the world, because many AIs are tasked with forming and reacting to a model of the world, limited though it may be. I think that systems like DeepMind's AlphaGo, which makes use of a deep neural network to play the game Go, perform the exact type of collaborative thinking between brain and mind that I was describing in the Rocky example, though the set of inputs and outputs that flow between the two is drastically limited for AlphaGo. I don't think it'll be so limited for very long, as AI research continues to advance with leaps and bounds. Most current forms of AI may be extensions of our mechanistic, deterministic way of getting lumps of matter to take actions, but they won't stay this way as AI gets stronger and is given access to the internet and instantiation in robots. We need to start thinking about developing something like an AI Bill of Rights. Really, we should think about how poorly those of us in power treat creatures that don't have the power to stop us. It's historically been, sadly, almost effortless for humans to rationalize treating other living beings cruelly, even other living beings that we know to be conscious, like our fellow humans. Therefore, I'm not terribly optimistic about our potential for revolutionizing our morality when it comes to artificial intelligences, especially when most people will remain skeptical that there's a mind therein, probably well past the point when it's obvious that there is. If it's convenient to dehumanize another entity, by and large, we will do so without batting an eye. This cynical viewpoint is really something you just have to make peace with about the way humans operate, if you're going to look at the reality of our history and our cultures from a sober perspective. It harkens back to the evolutionary discussion I was giving before. Ruthlessness against those we feel no kinship for was a successful evolutionary strategy in the past and remains deeply embedded in human nature. We can take a great deal of solace in the fact that our culture and collective morality has advanced to the point where most people have goodwill for others most of the time, and our world is more peaceable than it's ever been. But we have a long way to go. To begin with, we should recognize that less intelligent animals experience conscious sensations just the same as we do, though they might not have some of the understanding we have. A chicken that has its wing broken when it's shoved into its crate at a factory farm definitely feels pain, likely identical in character to the pain you might feel if I reached out and broke your finger. Factory farming is a brutal, heinous thing we perpetuate without a care because our understanding of consciousness is wrong. It's wrong partly because it's convenient for us that it's wrong. I mean, I wouldn't argue that meat doesn't taste amazing and that eating it is habitual for us through no fault of our own. But I think turning a blind eye to the suffering of others when it benefits ourselves is both the definition of evil 
and a central facet of human nature. Maybe being foolish enough to turn a blind eye to that fact is also a central facet of human nature. In any case, I remain optimistic because I think minds are changing, compassion is growing, and the world is on an upward moral trajectory. My point now is that if our consciences have any room for empathy towards an unfamiliar and ambiguously conscious other, now is the time to cultivate that. The world's upward moral trajectory could be upset by many of the turbulent forces at play all around, not the least of which is the rapid development of artificial intelligence. Okay, so that got a little dark there in the last section. Uh, here are some fun things to think about concerning cool possibilities I see waiting in the future for consciousness here on Earth. If it's true that consciousness arises out of the information processing done in our brains, we'll almost definitely have the opportunity to expand and improve our capacity for conscious experience by installing brain implants in the future. These would take the form of a microcomputer that can interface with neurons, trading information back and forth. There's already research being conducted in this area with impressive success. The company BrainGate has technology that allows paralyzed people to move a cursor and click on a screen just by thinking about doing so. Elon Musk is also currently setting up a company to pursue similar technology. The possibilities are really incredible to think about. There may be a point in the future where you can project images like movies or virtual reality games directly into your visual field, along with sounds, tastes, and other bodily sensations. Brand new sensations may even be discovered, and access granted to a level of comprehension and insight beyond what's currently imaginable. I think there are really no boundaries on the level of consciousness you can reach as more information is processed. The more information you can model, the more you become aware of, and the more vivid and interesting reality becomes. And there is an infinite amount of depth to the universe. It may also become possible to record the actual sensation of your experiences and relive events in your life, or to share them with others. There may be a new type of neural YouTube in the future where you stream the experience of somebody skydiving or of somebody playing quarterback in the Super Bowl, actual real experiences exactly as they were felt in the moment, on demand. Taking this further, it may be possible to link minds together, enabling both a collaborative thinking space and a shared, fused experience. Perhaps the bounds between self and other in such a case would disappear while the link was established, forming something like a supermind from the melding of what are normally two separate conscious spaces. Why stop it too? The internet of the future might involve plugging into a collective conscious space where the minds across the entire world jump into one sea of awareness, one unimaginable overmind. Maybe the experience will be godlike, unimaginably blissful, the difference between what living inside a human mind is like versus inside the mind of a snail. The future is going to be ridiculous. No matter what comes, I think we all know that this is an absolutely fascinating time to be alive. Maybe we can take some of the awe we feel contemplating this fact and use it as fuel to live a kinder, more loving, more compassionate life. I think I could certainly benefit from trying to heed this advice. What are we really here for, anyway? Love one, love all.